This episode was originally recorded on August 6th, 2017. The hosts are Chelsea Slotten and Emily Long. The guest is Jessica Irwin. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten and tonight I'm joined by Jessica Irwin and Emily Long. Ladies, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. It's always amazing to have you. Great to be here. Perfect. Um, so on tonight's episode, we are going to be talking about underwater archaeology. And Jessica has been kind enough to join us as she is a underwater archaeologist. So I know you've been on the show before, Jessica, but if you wouldn't mind just doing a, a quick recap of who you are and the type of work that you've done, um, both underwater and terrestrial, if you so choose, um, and then we can move on into what is underwater archaeology and how is it different from terrestrial archaeology and all of that good stuff. So I am an underwater archaeologist. I work currently in the state of South Carolina. Um, I started out as a terrestrial archaeologist. I think most of us underwater maritime folks start out in the terrestrial realm and then transition over to the underwater stuff. When I was a trustor archaeologist, I did a lot of work with plantations and um, enslaved peoples and looking at you know what those kind of lifestyles and pathways looked at. And then as an underwater archaeologist, I wrote my thesis on slave ship construction and how ships can be specifically built for very special purposes and why that makes the slave trade kind of a more diabolical thing than we we might think about it. Um, I also do a lot of work with Civil War shipwrecks currently here in South Carolina, big project called the Stone Fleet, um, Civil War blockade ships that are sunk all over the South. And then I have recently started doing some work with World War II stuff, submerged aircraft wreckage, um, and helping look at crowdsourced remote sensing material for you know, all over the ocean in terms of looking for sites and identifying sites in places that are really, really hard to access. So that's what I do. Um, and that's kind of how I got into it. Spectacular. And that sounds like you've kind of fit a lot of different aspects of underwater archaeology, um, both in terms of time periods and the things you can, can do with it. So what are what are some of the main differences that you see um, between kind of underwater archaeology and, and terrestrial archaeology, well, other than the obvious. obvious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> underwater archaeology is underwater. And just to be clear, there's a couple terms for underwater archaeology. There's maritime archaeology, there's um, nautical archaeology, and there's underwater archaeology. And the reason that I call myself an underwater archaeologist is because most of the research in the sites that I do or work on are under the water. As a maritime archaeologist, and I, you know, I could fit into that category too, you might not necessarily do things that are submerged. You might do a lot of things, you know, shipwrecks on shore or looking at maritime communities or maritime peoples. And so that's where that terrestrial training and underwater training can coincide to look at you know different types of sites um, another big difference between underwater archaeology and terrestrial archaeology is that underwater archaeology we need a lot more gear to compensate for the work underwater so it makes the work a lot more expensive um, not to say that terrestrial archaeology can't be very expensive because we know that it it is but the equipment that we use is a lot more complicated because of the underwater environment and like the question, scuba gear and whatnot. Well, scuba gear is one part, um, depending on, you know, the site that you're looking at. So most of the sites that I work at are in less than 40 feet of water. So just regular scuba gear that you can get at, you know, your local dive shop works for us. The folks who do really deep sites, um, like some of the sites in Greece and in the Mediterranean, they dive on rebreathers. And those are a lot more expensive and they take a lot more training outside of you know, our academic training in terms of how we look at archaeological sites. Then if you want to excavate a site, you need things like dredges and pumps and boats. And 
terrestrial archaeology, you know, you need two feet to get there, a shovel, a screen, you know, maybe some more intense equipment depending on where you are, but you can you can get the things that you need at a hardware store or you can come up with the things that you need relatively easy. It's not the same in underwater archaeology because you can't just like go out and buy a boat. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it makes research institutions kind of the primary folks that are conducting underwater archaeology. Um, so that's kind of one of the big equipment issues. And then because you're underwater, you imagine doing archaeology blindfolded in a dark room and you're not allowed to talk to any of the people you're working with. <laughs> um, you know it's great it's kind of and it's also like terrestrial archaeology you know you go to field school and there's air-conditioned bathrooms and you know you bring your lunch in and you get to take breaks and talk and maybe there's lessons at night and then you go out and do crm and it's like i haven't showered in three weeks and i'm living in tent. <laughs> so underwater archaeology can be the same because you go to field school and it's in the Caribbean and there's a hundred feet of visibility and it's tropical and warm and fantastic. And then you get into the professional world of archeology span and you know, it's December and you're in a wetsuit and it's 40 degrees outside and there's two inches of visibility as you crab crawl, you know, down a ballast pile. So the environmental challenges I think are a little bit more extreme just because you can't say, Hey, you did that grid line incorrectly. Um, you know, your team, the communication that you have at the beginning of each dive has to be really, really clear and specific so that your team can function in the dark without talking to each other, basically. <laughs> are there hand signals or anything of that sort? There are hand signals, and underwater archaeology is, you know, there's a lot of trust involved. Not that you don't trust your coworkers when you're doing terrestrial archaeology, but the training that you need to do things underwater is just a lot more extensive. Um, most university programs put you through something called AAUS training, the American Academy of Underwater Sciences. So you have to be able to, you know, rescue your dive buddy. You need to be able to lift them to the surface and administer CPR because there's this added element of danger. So Diving already has hand signals, um, and then before you go down, you kind of say, okay, like we're going to focus on this one area, kind of like you would at the beginning of a day of a terrestrial site, and you come up with your hand signals, and that's all great and good, but once you get a dredge running, if you can see your hand in front of your face, like that's a really good day. <laughs> um, <laughs> most of the time, you're kind of just like roaming around in the dark and every once in a while you put your hand up to tap to make sure that like your buddy's still next to you that they're doing okay so wow well that that um brings up a question for me in particular i mean i have absolutely no experience in maritime or underwater archaeology whatsoever other than seeing i think it was like the remains of a tugboat or something near the shores of lake erie <laughs> just being able to swim out to be like ooh, there's a boat but beyond that, um, like, how does survey work in itself? I'm, I picture, you know, for me, a long line of people walking across the landscape. Are you swimming in a line? Or are you doing the survey in a boat? How does that whole process begin? There's a couple different ways that we survey. For the most part, it depends on what you're doing for academic questions you might you know you might be looking for a specific shipwreck so your survey would start in historical archives um looking at newspaper articles and journals and things to say okay we you know they're in 1770 this shipwreck sank off this point like let's go look for that shipwreck when you're doing kind of more crm survey you might just be surveying in an area because they want to put in a dock structure. So if you're looking for at a whole area, um, we don't swim in a straight line. We <laughs> have remote sensing technologies that we use. And there's two main remote sensing technologies. And in the past, I'd say 10 years, and really in the past five years, there have been more that have developed that refine that survey that, that those surveying techniques so the two main survey techniques are sonar 
and a magnetometer. And a sonar, you might have heard of that, you know, from bats in school. It works the same way. We tow a big fish-looking robot-y thing behind the boat, and it sends a signal down, and the signal bounces back, and it presents us a picture of the the bottom of the ocean. And you can see really good shapes. Um, if there's a ballast pile, you'll get this really nice cylindrical shape of that. Or I've seen, you know, more modern ships where you see the smokestacks or the engine housing appears in that sonar image. Um, and then you take the GPS coordinates of exactly where that was and you know you have a site. The other piece of equipment is the magnetometer. And it, again, it looks like a big fish and you tow it behind the boat. Um, and it takes magnetic readings like a metal detector might on the surface. And it doesn't give you the same kind of picture as a sonar would. It just gives you pings and you can put those little spikes of a magnetic anomaly. You can overlay it on another map, probably your sonar map and see where things match up. And so if you have a World War One or World War II ship where most of it's metal, you might get a giant magne magnetic anomaly. In my work, it's just copper fastenings, maybe copper sheathing on a ship, not much. So you get smaller pings, and then they overlap with a sonar image, hopefully, and you might have a site there. And then the final step of that, which I guess would kind of be like phase one equivalent, um, is you ground truth. So that's when you get your dive gear and you dive off the side of the boat and you go down and you say, oh, hey, this is a shipwreck. Hooray. Or, oh, hey, somebody's been dumping tires here to make a fishing hole or something. Um, but a lot of our survey work we do in an office. We look at, you know, nautical charts, known obstructions that, you know, are in channelways and shipways. Where have they put artificial reefs in? Where are there, you know, new sandbars going to be because they just dredged out an area. Um, and some of those techniques don't work in certain places. I did some work in Bermuda and the reef structure there is volcanic. So oh. the magnetometer and the sonar just don't work. Right. Um, so there we kind of do more traditional thing called towboarding where you literally get dragged behind a boat and you look down at the water and when you see something, you let go and then everyone comes and investigates it. So, oh wow. We have some really amazing high technology that we can use. And then we have some old school, you know, get dragged behind a boat technology. There's been a lot of developments with multi-beam sonar. Um, and there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. There's someone in Albania trying to develop an underwater iPad. There's people that are, you know, trying to develop autonomous survey um, robots so that you don't have to tow it behind a boat, that you can just program in it. It does it all itself. So there's, you know, there's things that are going to change going forward, but those are kind of the basic survey methods. And uh, like you said, you, you do a lot of work in the office beforehand. Out of curiosity, are most shipwrecks generally already known about or if there's a, an idea like it's somewhere within this many square miles and then you go look for it or are there still a lot of unknowns out there that wouldn't even be in a historical document or that type of thing is there still a lot of unknown out there there's so much unknown i just read a statistic that said there's three million potential shipwrecks in the historic record oh my God. Uh, and that's not including, you know, before the historic record. Mm -hmm. And that's also not including things that are becoming more and more interesting. So, yes, it's really exciting to think that you're going to go and find Columbus's ship that sank when he was exploring, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also amazing handmade craft that, you know, indigenous populations have been were making for thousands of years before any kind of colonization. And then there's the ingenuity of people who live on the coast, you know, who come up with these vessels to, they call it going coasting when you're just going up and down the coast to trade goods before there's, you know, railroads and a really good road infrastructure to do your trading. And some of these vessels are so ingenious, but when we try to think of them today, you know, it just, it's not something that is in our normal kind of way, what we think about boats. 
And then yeah. there's also things that you think you would know about, but then we just, as a humans collectively forget. So that's part of the stone fleet that we're working on here in South Carolina is, you know, they sunk 40 plus ships, but you know, people just kind of forget about it. It just falls away from our collective knowledge. And then we need to go back out and rediscover those things. So there is no end of shipwrecks anytime soon. And other than the Titanic, I don't think that our field has really even started exploring the deep ocean, which is a whole other challenge. So right. So that is so cool. I guess one thing that I've always wondered about in terms of underwater archaeology and um, a a second point that is just kind of one that I want to hammer out home. Um, And the but my question is, I've always wondered, I've looked at some some underwater archaeology kind of field school is because I think that it would be, you know, an interesting skill to, to learn. Um, and we're doing more and more with underwater archaeology. And I think that uh, in terms of employability, it might be a good thing to have on your resume. But looking at a lot of the underwater field schools, you know, some of the the certifications that you, I mean, you have to have a PADI license or this or that. Um how many underwater archaeologists are kind of like scuba divers who are looking for a way to get paid to scuba dive? Um, you know, and, and what percentage are archaeologists who learn how to scuba dive? I think there's more archaeologists that learn how to scuba dive than scuba divers who become archaeologists. One, because I often feel that being an archaeologist is kind of like being what being an actor and actress must be like where you hear no a lot before you hear yes. Um, where, you know, you apply there, you apply for a lot of jobs and you don't make a lot of money before you get those kind of yes answers. The other thing with scuba divers who want to become archaeologists because they want to get paid to be to scuba is that archaeologists who are trained as archaeologists first know that the archaeology isn't about the stuff. And for a lot of people who are scuba diving first, they feel like, oh, I want to go find treasure. I want to look at cool stuff. And so that's why they start pursuing archaeology and the realization that the things that they find, they're not going to be able to keep or they're not going to get rich from them kind of deters them from the field. There are really amazing people who were scuba divers, who became historians, who then became archaeologists because they were so excited about the things that they were seeing or finding underwater that, you know, it just drove a passion in them. Um, but it's really, I think it's really hard for a lot of people who aren't kind of trained first to see the value of, you know, one pipe stem on a shipwreck could potentially date the entire shipwreck where they're just like, oh, look at this cool thing I found. So if, you know, there's not a ton of people who become, who are scuba divers first. Sure. Um, and then the, the kind of point that I wanted to hammer home, I know... In terrestrial archaeology, you have a lot of issues with preservation, um, particularly of your more organic kind of materials, wood, cloth, that sort of thing. And then oftentimes you get these shipwrecks that are that are completely made out of wood in some cases. Um, and the, the environment underwater is obviously very different than the environment <laughs> up up here. But I think there are both a lot of good potential to to find things that we wouldn't normally find in the archaeological record underwater but i think there are also a lot of issues in terms of preservation if things have been like completely um you know submerged in in salt water for 300 years um you know and that's just the the little bits that i pick up from here and here and there the couple you know, articles that that you read or get assigned to in class. I'm definitely not an underwater archaeologist. But if you could touch on... Preservation is a huge part of your training. And there's people who specialize just in underwater conservation. Um, And I will admittedly say that many of them come from foreign universities and that a lot of places do a much better job of training conservationists than we do here in the United States. One of the things that again, costs a lot of money and it's a little different from terrestrial archaeology is that you, as an archaeologist, when you're doing anything, you cannot bring anything to the surface 
unless you have a conservation plan, space for that thing to be conserved, money for that thing to be conserved, and a place for it to live in perpetuity. So that's a kettle of fish. (laughs) Yeah. So we don't, like when I find something, if I'm looking at a shipwreck, it's been there for 300 years. It's doing just fine where it is. I don't touch it and I just document it. It's better off where it is than if I take it up. And when you make a decision to bring something up, you know, you need to bring it up from the bottom. It needs to go straight into water. It needs to go to the place that it's going to be conserved. So you have to think of all those things before, which makes the survey and the ground truthing really important. And then rather than start excavation, a lot of times we'll do a huge site map with site documentation. And then when excavation does occur, it might only be one unit or two units um, just to kind of get an idea of like how much whole structure is under this ballast pile or how deep is this sediment? And is this something that we want to really pursue? And then there are things that, you know, they do have the money for and they do pull it up and have really interesting. And in South Carolina, that's the Hunley. But they did not touch that submarine until they had the facilities built to get it conserved. They had the money and the staff and everything that they would need to take care of it. So conservation is a huge challenge. Um, And that's another one of those things where a scuba diver might see something underwater and say, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. It's a sword or a musket. I'm going to take it home and keep it forever. And then within a month, it's just a pile of rusty dust because the principles of conservation, you know, are just lost on the layperson, or, you know, they didn't have, you know, you don't have the ability to do electrolytic reduction on a piece of iron in your house. You need to do that in a lab. So conservation is a big obstacle and a very expensive one, which is why there's not a lot of Hunleys or Vasas or other big famous shipwrecks that you can just go and look at. That is (laughs) good. Good to know. And, and definitely very different from terrestrial archaeology, where you dig stuff up and take it home. Um, and don't necessarily always have a conservation plan. And, you know, we could probably take a page out of the underwater book and be a little bit better about about that um, terrestrially. But I think that just about brings us to the end of our first segment. And I think it'll be a great kind of transition point in the next 20 minutes to talk about some of these really, really amazing sites um, and case studies that you just mentioned. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On tonight's episode, we have been discussing underwater archaeology. Um, Jessica Irwin has joined us to tell us all about her work on that, which we're super grateful for. In the the last 20 minutes, we were talking about kind of what underwater archaeology is, how it's different from terrestrial archaeology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And in this section, we are going to move on to some of the really cool things that have been found through underwater archaeology and some of the really great case studies. Um, I think, Jessica, you, you had mentioned a particular submarine that's been found off the coast of South Carolina. Yeah, so the Hunley is the, the South's favorite submarine. Um, <laughs> it was a Confederate submarine. It is the first submarine that ever sank another ship. And it never resurfaced and so the thing people held on to this idea of the Hunley for a really long time and a lot of people looked for it and then the army corps of engineers decided to put in a nice shipping channel so that charleston could benefit from you know global commercialization and there was a feeling that the Hunley was never going to be found again and so using hence some of the techniques that we talked about earlier um some researchers found this magnetic anomaly and brought in archaeologists and all sorts of other people and figured out, dove down, took a look at this thing and said, yes, this is the Hunley. 
Um, actually, the man who figured, who was the first person to touch it and say, this is the Hunley, his name is Joe Beatty, and he is retiring after 40 years at the end of the month. So, you know, this was a long time project. So they found it and told the state of South Carolina about it. And the state put together a commission to build a beautiful conservation facility with Clemson University. And they got National Geographic involved and anything that sunk during the Civil War or any Civil War ships technically still belonged to the United States Navy. So the Navy came down with Navy divers and they dredged the submarine out and it was listed at an angle. So they lifted it up and took it over to the conservation facility. Um, it was full of sediment. And so once they got to the conservation facility, they excavated the interior of the Hunley, just like you would a terrestrial site. And because that heavy, sandy, like muddy sediment is very anaerobic, which, so there's no oxygen in there. They were able to find amazing artifacts. They found skeletal remains of all of the crew. Um, they were able to do facial reconstructions of the crew. Oh. They, after they did 3D scans and all sorts of other things, they reinterred the crew and had a whole ceremony of burial for them. But once it was excavated, they started doing conservation um, on the actual submarine itself, the metal, and they hired a geologist to look at the incrustation to measure it to see, you know, how the currents were affecting it after it had sank. Um, They've just started the incrust, incrust, or to remove the incrustation from the interior of the Hunley, and they're finding fabric from these men's uniforms. Wow. They're finding, you know, jewelry, wedding rings, shoe pieces, just really amazing preservation because once things are underwater and the sand goes over them, if there's not a lot of movement, those things preserve um, really well. And so... They've been able to do all this research, but in addition to that, you know, there was some written records about the Hunley, but not necessarily how the steering mechanism worked or how they constructed it or how many rivets they put in it or, you know, all of these kind of really simple questions that you would think, you know, now if they were to build a submarine, there would be these amazing plans and all the worker on a roll and all these kind of things. And so they're answering those questions as well. So that's the one that everyone likes down here in the South. And it's a pretty cool story. And the ship that it sank, the Housatonic is actually still out in Charleston Harbor. And eventually there's um, some plans to go out and look at it to see, you know, how the Hunley actually sank it and how the explosives affected the ship and how long it took to go down. But it goes back to that, preservation question there's not you know the time or the space to preserve the things that we would bring up from the Housatonic until the Hunley is completely finished so once the Hunley is finished then we can go do some more and get some more um Housatonic stuff to kind of complete the whole story of that night when the Hunley sank the Housatonic so that's a really cool site that I like but that's and fascinating because I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much is in the United States when you hear shipwrecks, it's kind of like, oh, the Spanish, a Spanish galleon or a Viking longship or, you know, ships from from Europe or different areas like that. And I think it's great that there are some wonderful examples in the United States where it's like, yeah, there's some amazing things right in our backyard. Well, George Bash, he was the godfather of underwater archaeology he kind of developed all of the methods and how we do everything and he worked in the mediterranean um and he took a very specific approach because one there's clear water there and he could go back like season after season after season and really explore shipwrecks in depth and in the united states the kind of place that we have that's like that even though it's freezing and not warm like if you were in greece um is the great lakes mm -hmm. and so up in the great lakes you know, there was shipping going on commercially and industrially for a really long time. And those lakes, when you get a wind on them, they can be as rough and choppy as the ocean. So there's there's ships at the bottom of the Great Lakes that looked like a toy ship that you just set on the bottom of the lake. Like, oh, yeah, like the Edmund Fitzgerald? Or... <laughs> the Edmund Fitzgerald is definitely one of the most famous ones. Uh, but there's... I mean, there's hundreds more up there. There's ones that haven't even been discovered. And then there's, 
a cool phenomena. Well, it's it's sad and cool, but where as ships became out of commission or old or too expensive to repair, they would all get taken to a boneyard. And so you could go and get parts for your ship or boat from that boneyard. And then the boneyards would just be abandoned. And so there's, you know, hundreds of holes lined up side by side right next to each other that have just been left forgotten. And, you know, they're just there waiting to be researched or looked at or studied. And there's some in the Great Lakes. I know there's ones in Virginia. Um, there's World War One boneyards. There's World War Two boneyards. There's boneyards from, you know, every phase of major shipping. So there's a lot out there and in the United States. Yeah. So on the, the subject of the, the Great Lakes, I was watching on TV and I can't remember, you know, what channel it was. And since it was on TV, the actual, you know, truthfulness of it is is debatable. Um, but with some, some issues that global warming has caused, particularly in the Great Lakes, where the water is now warmer, so they're getting different types of uh, like algae or, or something in the water that is having some negative impacts on some of the preservations that, that can be seen. True, false? True. Okay. Uh, there's a couple things that have happened in the Great Lakes. One is there is um, a pollution factor, obviously, just like every other body of water. And as more and more people, you know, build on the shoreline, it stabilizes the shoreline, it changes the clarity of the water. All those environmental things that affect the lake also affect archaeological sites. Invasive species, I haven't personally dove to see this, but I have heard about it. And I know up at Thunder Bay, um, which is a sanctuary up there, they see this all the time. There's I think it's like a mussel or like a mollusk. Zebra mussels? Yes, zebra mussels. Thank you. That were introduced from recreational boaters who were boating somewhere else, who didn't do a good job of washing their boat. They bring those over and they have no natural predators now and they love wood. So all of these beautiful, perfectly preserved, you know, wood hold vessels have, are just covered in zebra mussels and they're just eating away at it. Um, and then also with global warming, you know, you get the depth change, you get the water temperature change, new algaes are introduced, um, people release their fish into the lake or people release stockfish thinking, oh, it's going to help the fish, you know, fishing industry. And all of these things have a negative impact on the preservation of this deep, cold, clear, fresh water, which is kind of like the ideal preservation for anything underwater. No oxygen, deep, so people can't get to it, cold, so it's like a freezer, and fresh water, so you don't have salt inundation. Um, so those, so unfortunately, we don't know how long those sites up there will last, but they're working on it. They have a lot of initiatives to try to eliminate some of those invasive species. Well, and depending on what, I guess, who's who is adding... Um... Some of these species, not necessarily I did a bad job cleaning my boat, but releasing fish and things. Um, I think some of that is actually illegal as well. Yes. You know, to, to do without being an appropriately sanctioned human being. Well, and some of it's accidental, too. I know there was some issues with the water flow through channels between each lake and, you know, that pushing the commercial aspect of it forward you know, they connected all of the lakes and they dug this channel to the ocean and things like that. And underwater archaeology hasn't, is a relatively new field of archaeology. It really has only been around since, you know, late 60s, early 70s and didn't really take off until, you know, the mid 80s as an archaeological subdivision. And so these weren't things that people were thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, things happen, you can't go back, it's unfortunate, but especially up at Thunder Bay, because it is a sanctuary, they're doing a really good job of trying to mitigate some of these problems, but there's some things that you just can't fix, unfortunately. The other interesting, like, fresh, not necessarily freshwater, but cold water sites end up being, you know, in the, the far north or um, northern Europe off of, I just read about a 
like a ship that sank in like the 1620s that they excavated off of uh, the Netherlands that had like dresses, like full-blown what women's dresses that they were able to bring up and preserve. And they researched the dress maker, and that's how they were able to identify the ship. And it was the queen's ladies and ladies in waiting trying to steal the crown jewels from England to go and sell them to support whatever military operation was going on at the time. Um, so there's also like really amazing preservation in cold water and there can be in tropics too. And obviously the tropics are more pleasant to dive in, but (laughs) sure. Um, so kind of going back to touch on the Northern, um, kind of Arctic ships, um, that preserve really well and have been found. I know recently, past year, year and a half, or at least it was published in the past year, year and a half, the the second of the two ships from the Franklin expedition was found um, up in, in Canada, and that was the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. And I believe it was the Terror that was, that was somewhat recently found. Um, and they've been, you know, doing interesting things, looking at the DNA of the individuals on on board both to try and maybe look for some familial members that you know are still still alive today but also realizing that some of the women who were on that expedition were you know women um surprise (laughs) yeah and and whether or not it was known that they were women when they signed up or you know whether you know the history of women pretending to be men to to go join in wars is is long but one of the the big things about finding that particular site was that there was an indigenous aspect to that and that when they were looking for the the ship um you know there was an indigenous person who said oh yeah go i go you know see all hunting or went seal hunting out there 10 years ago and i can tell you exactly where there was this big wooden thing sticking out of the um the ice the big wooden thing being the mast um and to to what degree is both like indigenous but also local oral knowledge being utilized to help identify some of these sites i I think most and I'm sure that, like, I would get a lot of debate about this um, in certain circles. But I think that most of the really major sites have been, or I shouldn't say major, some of the, the pivotal, like, you know, changing sites have been identified by local fishermen, people who live in the communities. Um, one of the big sites in Greece was found by sponge divers. There are you know, sites in um, the Caribbean where local fishermen and local free divers know exactly where they are, go there time after time. And then when they're finally asked about them, you know, you feel really silly because they're like, oh yeah, of course. Like I could have told you that you've been looking for that for three years. Like I could have told you exactly (laughs) where that was. Um, And then you know, here where I, where I live in South Carolina, because the water has such poor visibility, we do talk to the fishermen a lot, especially the shrimp trawlers, because they know exactly where their net is going to snag. They know exactly where the hazards are. Um, I did a survey not too long ago in a neighborhood because a bunch of shrimp trawler captains live there, and they all have these historic anchors sitting in their front yards from things that have come up in their net. And they just use them as lawn ornaments. So, you know, we went around and we asked them if they remembered where they got them from and tried to match them to some coordinates of known sites that we know and if we could measure them and document them and those kind of things. And they're happy to tell us and happy to work with us. Um, So I think a good portion of it, you know, some really significant sites that divers can actually access do come from local knowledge. And then on the flip side, there are some that are just you know, completely forgotten and evaded. Um, and that's when you really have to try to jump into the archives and hope that someone thought it was important enough to give some more details or location information about a site that could potentially be really interesting or, you know, paradigm shifting in a, in a region. 
And just speaking of uh, significant sites, do you have, or significant uh, shipwrecks, do you have a favorite? Either one that you've been to or one that um, you've read about? I think one of the sites that initially really excited me in underwater archaeology was the Labelle, which is a site in Texas. And it was LaSalle, one of LaSalle's ships on his last voyage. And um, he... A bunch of his ships wrecked and all of the survivors he just kind of left on the Gulf Coast and was like, oh, I'll come back and see if I can find you. And uh, basically they all died. Um, he came back and there was – or he didn't come back. And so anyway, they found one of his ships and built a coffer dam around it in the Gulf of Mexico huh. so that they could excavate it like as you would a terrestrial site. And – one of the things that a lot of when you're transitioning from terrestrial to underwater archaeology that you have to kind of give up is a lot of that vertical control. Um, and a lot of those, you know, a pale, like a paleo site, you might only see because there's some post holes or there's a fire pit feature or it's, you know, subtle coloration in the sediment. You don't have the underwater. So for them to do this was kind of amazing. And obviously very expensive, um, but they were able to conserve a lot of the items, but they found human remains in a rope coil of one of the shipmates, but they found rope and fabric and food and, you know, all these delicate organics because they were able to do this. And so that site has a very special place in my heart just because it's just so mind boggling that they were able to do that. <laughs> that is really cool. So did they want to do it with this kind of dam around it so that they could do some of the, the vertical information? Or was there a visibility issue? Was the water too rough? Like, why why did they decide to, to do it that way? Um, I think it was a, a visibility issue, but also they wanted to be able to excavate it with that kind of um, intricacy. And then also a copper dam, you know, you can't have excessively choppy water. So a putting that up in the Gulf of Mexico, not during hurricane season was kind of the best way to experiment. If this method applied to shipwrecks would work, you can't do that here. Um, the waves on any given day change from nothing dead flat to six to eight feet. You can't do that in the Mediterranean because, you know, a storm can just come up and then flood your cofferdam with water. So I think it was kind of a right time, right place. Let's experiment with this and see what we can do. And also, LaSalle was a fairly significant explorer. Um, I think the ship sank, um, you know, 300 plus years ago. So it was an, one of the older shipwrecks in the Western Hemisphere. So it was just, you know, a good, good experiment for them to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And actually, that just about brings us to the the end of our, our second segment. So it sounds like there are um, lots of different types of, of underwater archaeology that you can do and, and some great examples of things that have been found and recovered and, and preserved, but also some really tantalizing scraps of information about what could come out next. But I think when we when we come back, we might move on to some of the complexities, shall we say, <laughs> around doing this kind of work. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archaefantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Tonight, we have been discussing underwater archaeology. And so far on this episode, we've done the kind of what is it, how is it different from terrestrial archaeology, and we have also talked about some really amazing case studies that um, have been 
discovered and, and excavated or are known about, and we're super excited to see what comes out of their, their eventual um, excavation and, and further investigation. But I think we're going to move on to, to some of the real challenges um, in, in underwater archaeology. Um, so, I mean, money obviously is, is part of it, as it, you know, we've kind of discussed. There's, it's expensive. Conservation and, extravaganza. There, yeah, the conservation issues. Um, and, you know, you've got safety issues. And, I mean, it seems like there's just a lot going on. Um, but in, in the break, we had mentioned, um, a little bit, some of the, the difficulties that can come with some of the legislation around, uh, or, or lack of legislation around underwater archaeology, um, and what is permissible for non-archaeologists to do on, on these sites. And if you want to talk a little bit more about that, Jessica? Yeah, um. One of the things that is a constant challenge for archaeologists the world over, really, in terms of underwater landscapes and underwater sites is who owns the sea and who gives you the right or who can give you permission to go and excavate a site and to take the things from that site, who has ownership of those. And so for some of it, it's really cut and dry. Um, for example, not that everyone listens to this, but if a United States naval vessel sinks, it does not matter how much time passes. That vessel always belongs to the United States Navy. It doesn't matter where it sank, what waters it's in, etc. It belongs to the Navy. If you want to touch it, you need to go through the Navy. And that idea kind of of the law of the sea and admiralty laws extends to other countries as well. So... You know, the idea is that if there was a British ship that sank here, it would still belong to the Queen of England. And it's a good idea in theory, and it doesn't always work in practice because it brings up the idea of, you know, how do you prove that that ship is the ship that you say it is without doing excavation or without doing archaeology? And then there's the other component of, you know, like any other archaeological site, why is it important? Why does it matter if we put dynamite on this site in the Caribbean because we want the treasure that's within. So it's a constant battle of arguing for ownership and preservation and why archaeology is important and why it's important for us to ask these questions. Some of the laws make sense when you look at them on a small scale level. For example, there are some places um, in the Caribbean, on the coast of Africa, where salvaging is a part of that economy. And it's been a part of that economy for a really long time. And so those people feel and are entitled to do with their marine resources what they want. On the other side of that, you have just flat out treasure hunters who, for whatever reason, think that they're going to become bazillionaires from finding a shipwreck. And I can tell you right now, the only people who have ever become rich from finding a shipwreck don't become rich off of finding the shipwreck. They come become rich for defrauding their investors that they told were going to become rich for finding a shipwreck. Um, so those are some of the legal boundaries. In an ideal world, obviously, no one would touch the shipwrecks. We would get in there academically and look at them. But a lot of people who really care about them, who don't have the kind of academic training look at it and say, if we don't save it, it's going to wash away. And arguing that, you know, it's been there for a couple hundred years, like it's probably going to be okay. You know, they have a vested interest in the historical nature of it, so they want to save it. And so when laws and things come up, they don't want to, they, they want it to be that we have to save everything. Um, and as scientists, we have to say, you know, do we have a statistically significant sample from that ship so that we can do the research we want to do, or do we leave it in place? Um, and then the other big thing for archaeologists here is the United States hasn't ratified the 2001 UNESCO Convention, which makes underwater archaeological sites more protected. Um, and if you want to read more about that, there's a bunch of great articles on a site called MaritimeArchaeology.com that's run by a guy named Peter Campbell. He's a PhD out of Southampton, and he has really explored that topic in detail. So I won't get into it because I won't say it as well as he does. 
Fair enough. Well, that's frustrating. I mean, it sounds like it's, I mean, a pretty similar issue that we have with terrestrial archaeology, only that terrestrial archaeology may have a few more protections that I honestly hadn't considered that, oh, we have a few more laws that make it a little easier to protect as opposed to something that's underwater where who does it belong to? It's just, it's an interesting thing I'd never thought of. Well, I think too, with a lot of sensitive terrestrial archaeology sites, um, there's people who have a vested interest in protecting them as their own personal heritage. So, you know, the fight going on right now with different monuments, there are native, you know, groups who are interested in protecting that because that's directly related to their cultural heritage. And with the exception of, you know, military war vessels where maybe there's people who, you know, passed away on those vessels or ships that are related to marooned communities where a shipwrecked there on an island with no people and the shipwreck survivors were able to like kind of create their own community there. There, it's hard to sometimes give that direct correlation to give people the motivation to preserve a shipwreck. Um, and hopefully that will change as new things develop. One of the new fields that's kind of developing in archaeology is um, submerged paleolandscapes. Um, the last glacial maximum obviously had a lot more of our coastline exposed, and underwater archaeologists are hoping that a lot of those big migration questions and like when was the you know western hemisphere populated like maybe some of those answers are like waiting for us underwater um so things might change and that might interest people in preserving these sites a little bit more but in the meantime it's hard to directly correlate a shipwreck or you know a submerged site to someone's heritage so Going in a bit of a different direction in terms of challenges, I was wondering if you've had many challenges and if you know if any of your coworkers have challenges have had challenges as women. Um, is there decent representation of women in the field of underwater archaeology or has that been an issue uh, that's slowly changing or something that you find has changed, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I think you know, there have always been women in underwater archaeology. You'll be hard-pressed hard to find very many women who are the leaders in underwater archaeology. And it's definitely changing, but there is a, a bias, um, I feel, personally, towards women. And part of it is the nature of underwater archaeology. For example, you know, I have a daughter. I had to take a year off of diving because you can't scuba dive when you're pregnant. Um, and so that can be really a hindrance to a team where you have spent all this time building trust to work together in a really dynamic environment. There is also, you know, there's just not a lot of jobs or positions, I guess, uh, full-time permanent kind of jobs that we, you know, would all love to have in underwater archaeology and so when you go and look at the number of students who are entering graduate master's programs in maritime archaeology versus the number of women who are currently employed and then looking at the number of people who are employed in the top echelons of underwater archaeology the majority of students are women but then the majority of those people who are employed are men and then there's relatively zero women to speak of in the top echelons of underwater archaeology. So, you know, it is changing slowly, um, but there it hasn't quite changed yet. But I think that we might be in for a tide change here really soon. There's been a couple of really amazing um, panels and discussions and papers about this specific topic. And we finally, I think, have some really bold women who aren't afraid of kind of the political and career repercussions of saying this isn't fair and there should be more women and you should give women a chance and the kind of misogynistic views that have been held for a long time need to go away if you want to keep getting you know federal contracts etc mm -hmm. right and and i think that's a direction that kind of the broader world of archaeology is is also heading in in that there are more female students, the leadership is more male, 
but we are seeing more female PIs, um, more, you know, female leaders of CRM crews, that, that sort of thing. Um, Slowly, but surely. Yes. I think too, like, just like on another random side note, being a girl on a boat with a bunch of men, like there's just things you have to figure out and I won't get into them because we don't really need to go that way. But um, if you're going to be like the only chick on a boat full of dudes, like you just have to really own it and just go for it. And so I think that's one of the other things that's kind of slowly changing is that the guys are kind of becoming less sensitive to those things um, and more accommodating in terms of, yeah, you might be in tight living quarters for two weeks on a boat during a survey and you're driving straight lines back and forth and yeah, there's a girl here. Okay. That's just how it's going to be. So same thing with terrestrial. I think so much of this crosses back and forth with terrestrial archaeology too, where it's just a group of guys having to deal with the fact that if I have to, you know, change a pad or go to the bathroom, it's not an ew girl thing. It's literally just, it's just a thing. And they're like, okay, we'll just turn around. I'm like, thanks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it takes a little bit, but I think a lot of, I think it's a generational thing too. Um, and the education level of archaeologists is changing as well as it did for terrestrial just, you know, 30 years before where you could become an archaeologist without any kind of formal education. And as those folks who just kind of fell into archaeology, especially underwater archaeology, are leaving the field, a lot of the kind of bias is also going with them. Um, not 100%, obviously. It never will be gone 100%, I'm sure. But we can hope. And do you see this bias changing, too, in terms of different types of interpreting underwater archaeological sites from, um, you're saying you were studying slave ships and um, looking at the archaeology of the inequality and whatnot and views of women and so forth. Are you seeing um, interpretations changing as well? I don't think that we're quite at the same place that the terrestrial side is. I think it is slowly changing as we introduce more researchers. And, you know, I've talked about how expensive underwater archaeology can be, which means mm -hmm. that a lot of graduate students are revisiting collections and looking at, you know, collections that have been conserved to do their thesis work. Um, and so some of those things are changing. I think part of the reason it's not changing as quickly as it is elsewhere is that a huge component of underwater archaeology and ships has to do with warfare. And mm -hmm. even though, you know, we know that there were women Vikings and I am sure that there were, you know, women on Greek warships and all of those kind of things because in the United States industrial complex and what we associate with war is most commonly World War II and Vietnam and there were not women soldiers and there were not women, you know, in the Navy. It's that thought of, is there women there, just kind of gets pushed to the side. Mm -hmm. Part of the change is coming from looking at uh, colonial age vessels. Obviously, there were women colonists. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So, <laughs> you know, some of those things are changing. Uh, but it's just, it's a slow sea change. And the other part is underwater archaeology can be really um, research question driven because you only have a certain number of dives and a certain number of time. So you want to answer the specific question you're out there to answer. And so many times the question that you're trying to answer is just, what shipwreck is this? And it doesn't leave a lot of time to go back and look at the trade goods or how people lived on the ship. That's another question down the road when you've secured more space and time and people. Um, so we're getting there, but it's it's a slow it's a slower roll. It's interesting. Yeah, guns—they're exciting. Cannons can't beat them. <laughs> I'm sure they preserve well too. Oh my gosh, they, yeah, but they're the most intense thing to preserve, so, or to conserve. <laughs> but they stay. People can't steal cannons off of a shipwreck site. They're heavy, so that's one good thing. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's a challenge going back to just the term, in terms of protecting shipwrecks, that, that whole idea that they must be full of Spanish gold, and so tearing them yeah. apart just to get at whatever fancy bits you can get. It's like, nope, just cannons. <laughs> the Spanish gold thing is 
really hilarious, actually, because it comes from just one account. One account of Spanish treasure ships leaving South America and sinking. And that one account, you know, was really famous. At the time, it was famous because all of this gold sank and disappeared, and it has stayed famous for a very long time. And so people think that every single ship is going to have treasure on it. And that when you go to look at a ship, you're looking for the treasure. Like, what are you looking at? Um, one of my best friends in grad school, she did her thesis on a shipwreck that was called the Iron Plate Wreck because that was what was on it, was iron plate that was being moved um, industrially. And then later in the archive record, she found out some interesting other things with uh, Irish immigrants and all sorts of like, you know, it had a very interesting story, but that shipwreck, the reason we were able to study it was because the treasure hunters who had scavenged the area were not interested in the iron plate, you know? (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Tons of iron. Um, So they left it alone, which was great for us, so... Um, yeah, it is. It is interesting how kind of one one account of something can just so capture the you know both the public imagination, but also you know academic and researchers' imaginations and drive research and interest in what gets left alone and what doesn't and. People go to the gas station and buy lottery tickets, despite the fact that the chances of winning are, you know, one in a million or one in several million. Uh, Well, and if you take a look at the History Channel or National Geographic or Discovery, you know, how many of those shows are the lost treasure, the lost this, the lost that, and or the hunt for uh, such and such. I, I understand how it can captivate the imagination. But I think that there are so many more interesting stories that can be told, especially about shipwrecks. Shipwrecks are full of so much drama, like so much human drama, and so many interesting stories with interesting people. It takes so much courage to leave your home, get on a ship where you can't see land, to go to a place that you don't know, to go build a whole life. Like That is so much more interesting to me than some gold bars or some necklaces. Underwater archaeology has the potential to answer these really big questions about the beginnings of globalization, you know, trade, language, transitions, um, all of these really fascinating big questions. And instead, people want to focus on the treasure. And so it can be really frustrating when we can really talk about a lot of human experience and knowledge in this capacity, and instead we're focused on the stuff. So... Not that I'm bitter or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that that is incredibly, you know, frustrating. And um, I mean, on an earlier episode, um, and actually it may have been a Trial Tales episode, Emily asked us all, uh, several people, you know, what our favorite the favorite object that we ever found was, and um, you know, people ask me that all the time. A beautiful and rock. They're yeah. often very <laughs> disappointed in my like, oh well, I found this gray rock this one time. Hey guys, rock. <laughs> Exactly. Like, ooh, this cool, like, piece of pottery. Yay! And they're like, was it an entire pot? No. No. It's like three centimeters wide, but it was really cool, I swear. Like, yeah. good boy. You know, and, and just the misconceptions around what archaeology is, and, like, we're not all finding, you know, the lost city of Troy or... Uh, you know, although, like, we should just do an entire episode where I rant about Schliemann for an hour. Um, I I could rant. I can't even tell you how many people have asked me if I'm looking for Atlantis. Oh my god, yeah. You should just say yes, and then, like, ooh, really? And you can say, direct them to, like, that Disney movie, Atlantis, and be like, I'm in this amazing documentary called Atlantis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just kind of look at people, and when they ask me, oh, are you looking for treasure? And give them some snarky comment like yes the treasure of knowledge or something um and i mean granted underwater archaeology what underwater archaeology is really cool it's a cool job it's very romantic i get that but i spend 95 percent of my time sitting at a desk behind a computer doing research or analytics or conservation or you know other things just like every other archaeologist, 
you know, you, for every week you spend in the field, you spend six months in the lab. And underwater archaeology, for every week you spend in the field, you could arguably spend a year in the lab. So while underwater archaeology is glamorous and we have shipwrecks and these, you know, amazing preserved sites, we also have a responsibility to those, which means that we have to do all of the unglamorous jobs too, like do GIS work for 35 hours a week or work in a lab with tiny little tools to do your conservation and those kind of things. Yeah, so I think that's probably a, a good note to end on because we are reaching the end of our hour-long show. Um, unless oh, you I have... just had one other thing to add, though. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Final thoughts. Well, that's I... a good closing thought. If, yeah. what if, if you want to do archaeology, what should you do? If you want to become an underwater archaeologist or you want to go to an underwater archaeology field school, the minimum certification you need to dive is generally open water. Um, I would recommend getting a couple more dives because an open water certification is normally four or five dives, so maybe getting one or two more than that. And there is the um, Advisory Council on Underwater Archaeology website. It's acuaonline.org, and they list underwater archaeology field schools. They have a student newsletter that comes out once a quarter, and they have lots of great information about where you can go to be trained to become an underwater archaeologist. And they even have reviews of graduate schools and all sorts of fun stuff. So you can check that out. Spectacular. Well, Jessica and Emily, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I know uh, I say this just about every week, but I always feel like I learned so much getting to, to talk to you when we record these. If anyone who's listening wants to learn more about underwater archaeology or has questions about any of the things discussed tonight, you can always reach us on Twitter at Women Archies or at the women in archaeology at gmail.com email account. And um, again, thank you so much, ladies, and I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.